Welcome to the weekly sermon at Gateway. My name is Jason McNabb. Our current series, Human Sexuality in the Bible, explores what Scripture has to say on the topic of sex and our bodies. And here we find grace and truth as we consider marriage, singleness, sexual orientation, and more. You can find more information about this series at gatewaycrc.org. And now, here's this week's message. We are in a new series called Human Sexuality and the Bible. And before we get into that series, there's a couple things that I'd like to share with you right off the bat. The first one is the answer to a question. Why are we doing this? Is, is there like an ax to grind? Is there something happening in our culture or in BC or in Canada or within our church that makes this especially important for us to cover right now? Um, no, we, we have needed... Uh, it's instruction from scripture on the topic of human sexuality for 2,000 years. And so the reason why we're in this series is because as a church, we're walking through the book of 1 Corinthians. And chapters 5, 6, and 7 are all devoted to the topic of human sexuality. So the reason why we're here is because the Bible has brought us here. Scripture has brought us here. And I've decided to do what you might just call a series within a series because we want to slow down and give this the proper time and attention that it deserves so that you know what we're saying and what we're not saying. So that we can speak with truth and with grace, with clarity and with compassion. And we want to do that really, really well. So that's why we're in this series. Second, my encouragement to you is that this is a nine-week series so if you come today and you don't come to uh, any of the other weeks, you're, you're going to get a really truncated view of what we're trying to cover here. Kind of like the turning of a diamond. As you spin it, as you turn it, you'll see different colors and facets and features. Last week I talked about uh, the four blind men who touched the elephant, right? One uh, touches the trunk and says, it's a tree. The other touches the body and says, it's a blimp. The other touches the tail and says, it's a snake. And so they're making good observations, but they're wrong. And so my encouragement to you is try your best to come all nine weeks. And if you miss a week or you're sick, uh, watch it online. It's free. And then uh, join us again the following week. But do your best to come for all nine weeks. Uh, third and finally, um, I would just like to share with you right at the beginning of this series that there is enough in this series to offend everyone. Now, you're like, wouldn't you love to have my job, like right up here right now? So be praying for me. Like, there's, there's enough here to offend everyone because the topic of human sexuality is always potentially wrought with controversy. When you talk about sex, when you talk about sexuality in the main or transgenderism or homosexuality or marriage or divorce, uh, when, when you talk about singleness, all those topics within the framework of human sexuality, there, there's potential to bear offense. I never want to offend unnecessarily. But one of the things that I recognize that as a messenger of the gospel is that the word of God bears offense to us all. I, I find myself, I'm rereading the book, The Cost of Discipleship from Dietrich Bonhoeffer, and he says this, when Christ calls a man, he bids them come and die. And so one of the things that all of us have to recognize when we follow Jesus is he confronts us with respect to our sin and our need for a savior, that we need to lay down every element of our lives, our finances, our sexuality, our relationships, how we use our time, everything comes under the umbrella of Jesus as we lay it all down to him. And so will this series be offensive? <laughs> yeah, yes it will. 
but I don't mean to offend unnecessarily. So, the reason why we're doing this series is because God brought us here, because the Word of God brought us here. It's a nine-week series. Try to come every single week, and you'll probably get offended. Let's dive in. Mark chapter 12, starting at verse 41. The story of the widow's offering. Jesus sat down opposite the place where the offerings were put, and he watched the crowd putting their money into the temple treasury. Many rich people threw in large amounts, but a poor widow came and put in two very small copper coins worth only a few cents. Calling his disciples to him, Jesus said, truly I tell you, this poor widow has put more into the treasury than all the others. They all gave out of their wealth, but she, out of her poverty, put in everything, all that she had to live on. So at this point, you might be asking the question, what does this little story of the widow who has given everything that she has, what does it have to do with the topic of human sexuality? Well, I'm glad you asked. I want to convince you over the course of our time together this morning that this little story has everything to do with what we're going to be covering for the next nine weeks. So let's start off by re-looking at this and ask ourselves this one question. What is the story all about? What's the story all about? So we, we have a story of a widow. She's in the temple courts. She's giving of her last few coins. It's everything that she has. And you have to remember, this is a first century context in which women don't have many rights. They can't own property. And so for there to be a widow, that means that she has no kinsman redeemer. She doesn't have a husband. Presumably, she doesn't have any sons. And so she's in a very, very vulnerable position, and she gives all that she has. And then we see from the story, verse 43, take a look at this, Jesus points her out. So he's on one side, she's on the other side. He gathers together his disciples, and he says, look, look at this woman. She gives everything that he, she has. And this woman, she's become a bit of an icon in our churches. Typically, when we hear sermons about this, or we read devotionals about this woman, typically we see it as, here's a woman that we should emulate. We should be just like her. We should give everything that we have, not out of our excess, not out of our wealth, but even when it hurts. And there's some truth to that. Most certainly there is. Verse 43, again, Jesus points that out. She's given more than anything else. But what if I told you that with respect to the story, that's the subplot. But the main story is something else entirely. The main thrust of the story is Jesus is not happy in this moment. He's, he's sad, perhaps even angry, not at the woman, but at something else. So take a look at this again. If your Bibles are open, look at all of Mark chapter 12. It starts off with the teachers of the law and the Pharisees, and they come up to Jesus to try to test him. They want to accuse him, to cause him to slip so they can arrest him and put him to death. And they ask him questions on all sorts of topics, right? Paying taxes to Caesar, about sexual topics, about the bodily resurrection. They're, they're asking all these sorts of questions to try to ensnare Jesus. And then we read these words, and this is immediately before what we just read. Not like six verses, not even two verses. This is what happens immediately before our story. It goes like this. As he taught, Jesus said, 
watch out for the teachers of the law. They like to walk around in flowing robes and be greeted with respect in the marketplaces and have the most important seats in the synagogues and the places of honor at banquets. They devour widows' houses. Circle, highlight, underline. And for a show, they make lengthy prayers. These men will be punished most severely. They devour widows' houses. And then immediately, it goes into the story that we just read. And, and I'm thinking to myself, with, with all the sermons that we've heard on this, with all the devotionals that we've read, we miss it. We miss the main point of the story. It's not as much, here's a widow who gives of her last two coins. She's someone that we should emulate. Though there's a, there's a component of that. But the main thrust of the story is that there are religious leaders who are oppressing this woman. And the temple cult has become something that is twisted and ugly and distorted. It's an example of a widow's house being Devoured. It's an example of just how corrupt the temple cult has become. And so throughout scripture, from, from the beginning pages of Genesis all the way through Revelation, we see that there is a, a consistent mantra in which God cares for the little ones within his kingdom. Those who are vulnerable, those who are oppressed, he cares for in a very special way. And in the Old Testament, we read of a group of people that are identified more than 100 times, and it is this. He talks about the orphan, the widow, and the sojourner within your gates. And every single time this group of people is identified, there's also an instruction to the people of Israel that you should care for them. You should care for the vulnerable within your midst. And yet within the story that we just read, we discover that the, the temple cult, the teachers of the law, the Pharisees, they're doing the very opposite of what God has called them to do. And then Jesus comes along and he expands the list where he's, he's no longer just talking about the orphan, the widow, and the sojourner, but he also talks about the lame, the mute, the leper, and the sinner. So in essence, here's what we discover about the heart of God. I put it this way in your note sheet. We say these words. We got the slide. Vulnerable people and lost people matter to God. So they must matter to us. Vulnerable people and lost people matter to God. So they must matter to us. And Jesus made this clear. We see the most common accusation against Jesus goes a little bit like this. This man welcomes sinners and eats with them. And the context of this story in Luke chapter 15 is where the, the teachers of the law and the Pharisees, they're seeing that Jesus is hanging out with prostitutes and tax collectors and quote unquote sinners. And they are deeply offended that Jesus would do something like that. But, but what we find in scripture is that these are the people that God's people are to especially watch out for and to care for. And so even within the context of the story, this is where Jesus gives his most famous parable. The parable of the lost things, right? The lost coin, the lost sheep, and then the parable of the lost sons or better known as the parable of the prodigal son that God's people are to care for the vulnerable to care for the vulnerable and to run after those 
who are far from God. So that's what we see within this story. And that's the way that I put it in your note sheet. God's plan, care for the vulnerable, go after those who are far from God. But in Mark 12, we see that things have degenerated so, so far that the very teachers of the law, the ones who have been entrusted with these truths, are doing the very opposite of those things. So much so, get this, those who are quote-unquote sinners, they are not permitted to enter into the synagogue to receive teaching from what we now call the Old Testament from Scripture. Do you see just how sick and twisted that is? That's the equivalent of saying, you can't go to the hospital because you're sick, and you might get the other sick people sick, therefore you can't come in. And that's what they're doing. They are blocking off those who are far from God. They're blocking off the most vulnerable. And they're doing the very opposite of what God has called them to do. So I put it this way in your note sheet. The plan of the temple cult and the teachers of the law is to exploit the vulnerable and to cut off those who are far from God. To exploit the vulnerable and to cut off those who are far from God. It's the the antithesis to their God-given mandates. And in this instance, we see the teachers of the law, they're essentially saying to this woman, keep giving, keep on giving. God loves it when you give. He will bless you when you give. You just need to give a little bit more. And they're robbing widows of their houses. They're bleeding them dry. And the question that we have to ask, friends, is how is it possible that something like this could happen? How is it possible? And perhaps an equally important question is, is it possible that there are instances even today in which we are doing the same things? Is it possible that we have areas to grow with respect to this as well? In terms of our desire to not exploit the vulnerable and to not cut off those who are far from God, but to run after them and to care for them. This is an important moment for all of us, and I think as Christians, we gotta get this right. For, so for the next couple of months, we're gonna talk about the topic of human sexuality and the Bible, but right here and right now, I wanna, I wanna frame this entire series within the context of Mark chapter 12, to remember what the mission of the church is to remember what our calling is as the body of Christ with respect to people who are made in the image and the likeness of God so that we can bear good fruit with respect to these teachings. So in the coming weeks, we're gonna talk more about same-sex marriage, we're gonna talk about uh, biblical response to transgenderism, we're gonna talk about singleness, marriage, divorce, sex, we're going to talk about all, all these topics, but here and now, I want to share with you some striking statistics on the largest survey ever conducted on the topic of the LGBTQ community and religion or the church, and here's a couple of statistics that were covered in this, and th- this occurred in 2016, so it's a little bit old, but it's still the largest survey ever conducted in North America, and here's what they discovered. grew up in in the church environment. That's a big number, 83%. And of that number, 54% of them left the church after they turned 18. And 
perhaps this is unsurprising to you, but that number is significantly higher than those who do not identify with the LGBTQ community. So a lot of them leave once they become adults. But here's one that I found extremely, um, not alarming, but surprising. This one right here, 15% left because of the church's belief about sexuality, marriage, and gender. Just 15%. I thought that number would be so much higher. So much higher. And, and maybe you do too. And so what I'm taking away from this is this point, which I put in your note sheet. I said, according to the survey, relational division from the LGBTQ plus community hasn't primarily been caused by what we believe. It's caused by how we talk about and treat LGBTQ people. About how we talk about and treat them. Here's the last survey question response that, that really got me. It said that 78% of LGBTQ people who have left the church would come back if invited. And only 8% indicated the church would have to change their theological stance on sexuality for them to come back. In other words, this is a relational issue. This is a relational issue. The manner in which we have talked about this topic, the manner in which we have postured ourselves, in terms of the capital C church, we have not served them well. And there are things that we have to repent of. In other words, they often feel unloved and unvalued and mistreated and aligned and dehumanized because that's exactly what their experience has been. So today I want to set the stage for this series and I want to help ensure that we know what we are and what we are not saying. And to do that, I want to talk about two polarized positions within the church. I'm not saying that every Christian finds themselves in one of these two positions. I'm saying there's a road and there's pitfalls. And these are the two pitfalls that we need to watch out for that are quite evident, especially if you spend time on social media. <laughs> so let's just identify these for what they are. Those on the far religious right will say, we are in an all-out culture war and we must win it. We gotta win the war for the sake of our culture, for the sake of our family, for the sake of our church, for the sake of our country. We gotta win the war. It's the most important thing that we can do. And the reason why uh, Canada is going to hell in a handbasket is because of all these sexual issues or topics that are popping up within our culture. We gotta win the war. But unfortunately, when we have that sort of posture with respect to other people who are made in the image and likeness of God, we punt on the Great Commission and we don't have a good posture to have a relationship with the people that we want to convince. And in those ways, we're being false to the truth. And by the way, this is, there's nothing really new under the sun. You might recall when, um, especially for those of you who are members, you might recall when we were doing our Revelation series that we identified um, some of the manners in which the, the evil one, Satan, used schemes to distort his good and godly purpose within the church. So there were two churches, Ephesus and Laodicea, that Jesus said this. They had what I just called the Christ against culture response. They were a church that were biblically serious, but they were also missionally cold. 
And so what we learn from that is you can't win over your enemies. You can only win your friends. And people don't care about what you know until they know that you care. And the Apostle Paul tells us in the book of uh, Romans chapter 2 that it is the kindness of God that leads to our repentance. And it's the kindness of God that leads to the repentance of others. And so if we are called to love our neighbor as we love ourselves, then we have to get our posture right. But here's, here's what we find with these little churches. They were biblically thick, but they were thin in love. They had good doctrine, but bad devotion. They had good orthodoxy, but bad orthopraxy. And so for those of us who find ourselves on the far right side of the religious spectrum, here, here's what I would want to say to us. I would say this, good gospel doctrine without good gospel culture is no gospel at all. It's no gospel at all. And that's what Jesus says. And, and then James, the half-brother of Jesus, he says the same thing when he calls us not to be false to the truth. Don't be false to the truth. What, what is he saying? You could, hold, you could cling to the truths and the precepts of God's word, but if you wield them like a sword in your hand, then you're being false to the truth. And he warns us against having such a posture. And so the counter response to this from the far religious left goes a little bit like this. We're only called to the world's version of love and acceptance. The world's version of love and acceptance. We're, we're not required to speak the truth in love. We're not called to um, confront sin. We're called to always be loving, to always be loving. And in a sense, that sounds really good. Like, of course, we need to be loving. But it's not an embodied truth. It's more of a, a self-effacing relationship, a, a self-protective relationship where we don't have in mind the goodwill of the other person that we say we care about, but we're more concerned about ourselves. And if we confront something in their life, a, a sin that needs to be identified in their life, a blind spot in their life, then we're afraid that they're going to shoot the messenger. And so we're more concerned with ourselves than we are with our neighbor that we say that we love. And once again, there's nothing new under the sun. We saw this as a scheme of the evil one in Revelation chapter 2 as well. The churches Pergamum, Thyatira, and Sardis, they were in this camp. You can go read those later, Revelation 2. So they were spiritually alive. They were passionate about the marginalized. They were caring for the oppressed. But at exactly the same time, they were doctrinally compromising and indifferent to sin. And that's what I call the Christ accepts culture response. This is a church that is spiritually aware, but compromising and indifferent to sin. And this is where we start to say things like, God would never really say, and then we just make something up. But, but listen, God's will is knowable. It is, he's revealed himself to us in his word we know what God calls us to be and to do as people of the king. And so, again, I, I want to frame it this way within this series. I constantly have to confront the temptation in my own life to trust in the opinions of Justin more than the will of Jesus. And as a follower of Jesus, my goal is to say, God, I, I lay all those things down to you even the ones that I disagree with, especially the ones 
that I disagree with. So let me show you this. Some of you know that um, I'm just like a really, really good artist. So I'm going to do some beautiful artwork for you here. Look at this. I shared this image with you last week, but I want you to see it with your own eyes with my absolutely beautiful artwork here. So here we are. This is you. And this is maybe a friend that you love, that you care for. You see their face. You know their name. If you knew that someone that you love is about to drive off a cliff, what is your posture going to be? One thing you're not going to do, like the religious right, you're, you're not going to say, what an idiot. Like, what, what a baboon, you know? Like, what a, what a stupid, sheeple kind of person. We wouldn't call them names. We wouldn't belittle them. We wouldn't, even if we felt like it was a self-harm. Even if we felt like they, they say they're a follower of Jesus, but clearly they're not, we wouldn't have that posture toward them because we love them. Likewise, we wouldn't do the, the approach of those who are on the far religious left and say, you know what, I really love this person, but I don't want to confront the sin in their life because I want to be loving, I want to I be accepting, and so I'm just going to, you know, bye. You're not going to live that way. You're not going to do either of those things. What's your posture going to be in that specific instance? With tears in your eyes and with your palms open, you're going to say, turn. Please turn, please turn. And if they say, you religious slob, you bigoted idiot, what are you going to do? You're still just going to beg them to turn? Because you care more about the character of God than you do your reputation in the eyes of other people because you love them. And so it only makes sense for us to have an embodied posture filled with the fruit of the Spirit if we truly love our neighbor. That we're filled with love and joy and peace and patience and goodness and kindness and gentleness and faithfulness and self-control. That we would say, I love my neighbor and so I will speak with truth and I will speak with grace. 100% truth, 100% grace. And just, just a word on that with respect to grace and truth. The, these are not things to be balanced, okay? It's not like, you know, you, you might have a friend who says, you know, I used to go to so-and-so church. They're, they're like 75% truth and 25% grace. They're just a little too truthy for me, a little too much starch in the color. So I went down the street and I found this other church, 80% grace and just 20% truth. Man, that, that's the right ratio for me. That, that's kind of what I'm going for. No, no, these are not things to be balanced. Maybe a helpful example of this is the incarnation of Jesus, right? We say that he is 100% human and 100% divine. We don't say he's a concoction or a combination of the two. They can't be separated out from each other. He is the creator of the universe, sovereign over all, and he is just as human as you and I. 100% human. So in the same way, when we talk about how to embody the truth of the gospel, here's what we mean by that. We say we will be 100% truthful and we will be 100% gracious all the time to the best of our ability. That's what we mean. We will not treat these as things to be balanced, but we will be fully committed to both all the time. So that means we cannot be a pit bull for Jesus wielding the truth as though it's like a sword to cut down other people. But nor will we say, you know, I'm just being gracious, just being gracious. We won't do that. 
we will be firmly committed to, tr to truth and to grace. So for the remainder of our time today, I want to review what we can learn from this story in Mark chapter 12 and that we will carry these truths with us for the remainder of this series that we have learned from this little story. So here's the first principle that I would like for you to have in your tool belt over the course of the next two months. I put it this way. We will carry humility over pride. Humility over pride. We will bring our mirror Bibles and we'll keep our binocular Bibles at home. Here's what I mean by humility. We have to ask questions like, have we gotten things wrong with respect to how we have approached the topic of human sexuality and gender and homosexuality and transgenderism and singleness and marriage? And equally important to that question, has the posture in which we have embodied our positions caused harm to other people? Have we done those things? Is it possible that we also have things to repent of ourselves? Could it be that our prejudices, our homophobia, our crude and rude joking has caused unnecessary harm to those that we identify as brothers and sisters who are made in the image and the likeness of God, whom God says is more precious than all the jewels under the earth? Is it possible that we have been false to the truth and we too have things to repent of? Tied to our humility, this text demands that we don't create some sort of um, fishbowl atmosphere here. What I mean by that is we have, we have more than 700 members here at Gateway and there's almost a thousand of us who identify Gateway as their home church. And so th this is not as much a theological issue as it is talking about people who are made in the image and the likeness of God and who are worthy of dignity because they are made in his image. And again, it doesn't, it doesn't necessarily change the manner in which we need to speak to topics that we're concerned about, but we will always do it in an embodied way in which we care for human beings. And so look at Mark chapter 12 again. Jesus, he points out the widow, right? All eyes are on the widow, on her actions. But in reality, what do we see in the immediate preceding context of the story? What is Jesus doing? The focus of this story is not so much on the widow herself, but on the actions of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law and how they have totally whiffed on the teaching of the truth of God's word with respect to the most vulnerable people. So the focus, it's not so much on the widow, but on us and how we relate to the widow. And Jesus, he does exactly the same thing in John chapter 8. We, we saw the video trailer, right? This woman who's caught in adultery, she's caught in sexual sin. The religious leaders, they throw her in the center of the circle. They pick up stones and they say, Jesus, what should we do to this woman? She's caught in adultery. You know what the Old Testament says. You know what scripture says. And Jesus, he says, for he who is without sin, why don't you cast the first stone? At great offense to the religious right. And they all leave. 
But then Jesus says to her, after everyone has left, go and leave your life of sin at great offense to the religious left. Jesus offends everybody. He offends everyone. And we realize something for the first time that every single person in this room has fallen short of the glory of God with respect to our human sexuality, with respect to our bodies, and with respect to how we have not loved our neighbor. And so Jesus says, bring your mirror Bible. Leave your binoculars at home. Bring your mirrors. Because there's enough right here in our own hearts, in our own minds, with our own sexuality, with our own temptations that we have to deal with. And let God deal with the rest. And so Jesus turns the lens on us. And our temptation, friends, throughout this series is going to, take, is going to be to take sexual minorities, to throw them into the center of the room and say, ooh, gross. But we're not going to do that. We're not going to do that. We're not going to talk so much about the widow as we are going to talk about how do we live in relation to the widow. We're not going to talk as much about the person who struggles with same-sex attraction, but how do we live in, in relation to the person who has same-sex attraction? We're not going to talk so much about the person who is a transgender woman as we are going to ask ourselves, how do we live in relation to that woman? Always, 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 we're going to look at ourselves and we're going to be filled with humility and say, God, what does it look like to embody these truths? What does it look like to love my neighbor as myself? What does it look like to be faithful to your word with respect to every aspect of my life? What does that look like? Friends, we are going to embody our doctrine, not just know it. And certainly, we will not wield it just so that we know where we stand. In preparation for this series, um, I listened to a message by a colleague and friend. His name is Peter Verhulst, and I highly respect him. I reached out to him. He, uh, he, he really helped me in, in my thinking with respect to this topic. And he shared a story with his congregation about thinking of ourselves like a family at a Thanksgiving dinner table. And I love that image. And so I said, can I borrow it? He said, yeah. And so it went a little bit like this, and I've added my own modifications, but consider everyone at the family dinner table for a moment. At the table, you have grandpa, and he kind of feels like there's a, a conspiracy that's going on, and he always uh, tends to see the world in, in black and in white, and he's become really agitated and frustrated because over the course of the last 34, 30 to 40 years, he feels like there is no black and white anymore. There's just gray. And he just wants once in his life for someone to say, this is black and this is uh, white. This is wrong. This is right. And to stand on the truth. And no one will do it. And it aggravates him and it frustrates him. And right next to him is his grandson, Michael, who has had same-sex attraction for over 10 years. And very recently, he, he came out and, and he shared with his mom that he has same-sex attraction and that he's been struggling with this alone for so many years, wondering why he has the feelings that he has. And ever since doing that, he has lost some friends at school. He feels the tension in his house. 
He feels disconnected and isolated from his church. And right next to him is his mom. And his mom has felt very similarly to her dad growing up, thinking that this was a black and white issue. But now when her son has come out, she wants to learn how to love her son without asterisks, without pretense, without caveats. And it keeps her up at night. And she's wondering, how do I love my son well? And right next to her is her sister, Aunt Sue. Aunt Sue is a, a beautiful woman. She's been single her entire life. But what no other soul knows is that just like her nephew, Michael, she also has same-sex attraction. But she believes that scripture says that she should live a celibate life her entire life on account of her same-sex attraction, but she will not tell a soul because she's watched the manner in which the church has looked at this. She doesn't want to be dehumanized or ostracized on account of this, so she walks alone. But friends, she needs her family. She needs the church. She needs to be enfolded and cared for and loved in an embodied way. But she's too afraid to come out. And right next to her is her big brother, Uncle Bill, who's a homophobe. He's got those stickers on the back of his trucks, you know, God hates fags. And, you know, he, he thinks that the world's going to hell in a handbasket because of sexuality and sexual sins. He's always harping on the liberal agenda, the gay agenda, and things like that. And meanwhile, he struggles with a pornography addiction. And he's too afraid to tell anyone about it. And right next to Uncle Bill is Michael's little sister, Jamie. And she has a friend who just came to her at school, her best friend. And she says, I, I feel like I'm a boy trapped in a girl's body. She also shared with Jamie that she has feelings for her. And she doesn't know what to do with that information. But in the midst of what's happening with Michael and with watching how adults are yelling at each other and arguing with each other, she doesn't know where to go. She kind of feels lost in the shuffle. She feels alone with respect to her struggles. And finally, there's Jonathan, the oldest brother. And he's away at college. And he doesn't want his mom to know that every weekend he sleeps with his girlfriend. And he's trying to justify it in his mind. He's trying to justify it away, but he feels this tremendous guilt and shame. And listen, Gateway, they're all here. They're all here. They're in this room, they're watching online. They're people that you know. Perhaps it's you. They're all here. And so what we want to do with respect to this series, with respect to this topic, is oh, we need to be filled with compassion. We need to be gracious. We have, if, we, if we desire to speak the truth, we've got to speak in love. We cannot be false to the truth. And so with respect to this topic, we need to have incredible humility. And we want everyone to know that the church is a safe place for strugglers and sinners, people just like us. Number two, we're going to focus more on hospitality over devouring widows' houses. Hospitality more than devouring widows' houses. And here's what I mean by that. Jesus accuses the religious leaders of devouring a widow's house, right? And the widow's house, you got to know, it's, it's the only safe place for a widow. 
in that context, it's the only safe place. It was her security net, her sense of peace. It meant that she was part of the community. And so if you take away the house, what do you do? You take away the safety, you take away the security, you take away the sense of belonging. And we don't want to do that here. And I would just say, like, if we really think that this is an important issue, then shame on us if we have allowed for one-night stands or pride parades to be filled with more acceptance than the church, where it's been easier to find a deep sense of community there than here and in this place. And what we want more than anything is for them to know that they are cherished by God. They are so loved by God. They're made in his image. And they are worthy of our dignity with respect to how we talk and behave and conduct ourselves. And so we want to focus more on hospitality than devouring widows' houses. I, I love the way that uh, author and pastor Preston Sprinkle puts this. He says this, it's not too much truth but too little love that drives people away from the bride of Christ. I'm not talking about a thin type of love that does not care about holiness. I'm not talking about superficial, secular love trumpeted by our 21st century Western culture. I'm talking about first century Jesus love, the one that seeks one's holiness, but it's not contingent upon one's holiness. The agape love that Jesus showed, the love that told an extortionist, follow me, and stood up for a woman fresh off her steamy affair, the love that demands, if you love me, keep my commandments. But not, if you keep my commandments, then I will love you. Do you see the difference? Jesus' love is neither permissive nor conditional. It expects obedience, but it doesn't require obedience as a prerequisite. So, Gateway, listen. Love doesn't mean you need to affirm uh, everything about someone else's behavior. My goodness, by that definition, no one in this room could be married. None of you could be members of this church. No, it, it means that we affirm their dignity and their humanity as people who are made in the image of God, the imago Dei, that they are filled with the image of God and therefore are worthy of our dignity. So here, here's what I would love to do. I want to sh show this uh, beautiful picture one more time for a second. Here's what I'd love for you to consider just for a moment. I would say to you, with respect to any topic in the world. We're not just talking about sexuality. We're talking about anything that you have identified as a non-negotiable of scripture. I would say the more you are concerned with someone uh, walking in the wrong direction, running away from God, doing something that is wrong, the more you are concerned that their behavior is leading them away from God, and for those of us who are Christians, we're thinking about the Great Commission, right? We're thinking about grace and truth. The more you're concerned about that, the more you will love them. The more you will be filled with compassion for them. The more you will invite them to your house. The more you will go to their house. Not less, not less, but more. Because you understand the mission of God, which is to care for the vulnerable, and to run after those who are far from God.
Doctors go after the sick, do they not? Shepherds go after lost sheep. Fishermen fish for fish. And Christians care for the vulnerable and run after those who are far from God. That is the calling of God's people. Third and finally, we're going to focus more on Jesus' authority over my personal opinion. And I, I think that's obvious, but it states, clear, clearly stating it, that in this series, we are not going to focus very much on the opinions of Justin. The opinions of Justin do not matter. We're going to consider the words of Jesus and the will of Jesus for our life with respect to everything. So here's how I'd like to frame it. One way of thinking about this in your mind is every single time I'm up here, I'd love for you to picture us as though we're sitting at a table together and we're at Starbucks. And I'm going to ask you two questions. The first question I'm going to ask you is, is Jesus the Lord of your life? And if you say no to that, then I'm going to say, tell me what the ultimate authority of your life is. What's your worldview? What's your perspective? What's, what's the authority with which you rule your own life? And does that authority love you? Does that authority have in mind what's best for you? Tell me about that, and we'll, we'll have a great conversation. And so I, I don't want to talk about Jesus' righteous rules before talking about Jesus and introducing you to Jesus. What's the point in that? But if you say, yes, yes, Jesus is the ultimate authority of my life, then I'm, I'm going to ask you this question. Okay, do you believe that the word of God is useful for teaching, correcting, training, and righteousness, and that when the Bible says jump, we say how high. Do you believe that in your heart of hearts? If you say yes to that question, then here's, here's what we're gonna do. We're gonna say, can, can we read it together? And can you instruct me and I instruct you with respect to how we interpret the text? And you know, as we read it, you might say, I don't, I don't interpret it the same way that you do. And I'll say, okay, well, how, how do you come to that conclusion? But let's make sure that we put aside our own personal preferences and our personal opinions and we just look to the word. What does the word say? Because this brings light and life to all who listen. And so let's focus on the word of God. And in this series, that's what we're gonna do. We're, oftentimes, we're just gonna march through a text and we're gonna say, what does it mean in our context today? And what does it look like to embody this well? with respect to our neighbors. How can we do this well? But it's always, always, always within the framework of understanding that some of you have been following Jesus for decades and some of you are relatively new to this journey and you, we might be softening out some edges together, but let's do it together. Let's lean in together to ask good questions of one another and I think we will be well served. So Justin's opinion does not matter. In this series, we're going to assume that the Bible is the ultimate authority on all subjects, on all subjects. So what does the Bible say? On marriage, on singleness, on divorce, on homosexuality, on how we build our identities, on sex and our bodies in the main. That's what we're going to explore over the next couple of months. But I will say this in preparation for that. With respect to our positions, I think by and large the church has gotten it right. But with respect to our posture, I think there are things that we need to repent of. I think there are things and areas in which we maybe have been false to the truth. Perhaps with crude or cruel or rude joking 
maybe we have devoured some widows' houses. And maybe there's some things that we have to repent of as a church. But my desire is within all of it that we would keep the word of God at the center and that we would realize that this is not only the ultimate authority of our life, but it is the only thing that identifies that we will flourish and experience the shalom of God, peace, justice, harmony, if we live according to his ways. We believe that as Christians. And, and, and we trust that if we do this well, it will bear good fruit. Do you know the greatest argument that I have heard, and I think it's, it's the most powerful argument that I have heard with respect to um, our traditional interpretation on a lot of LGBTQ topics, is the bad fruit. The bad fruit. The fact that those who have same-sex attraction are four times more likely to commit suicide. That those who struggle thinking I'm a woman trapped in a man's body or a man trapped in a woman's body are eight times more likely to try to commit suicide. You think about it, like these are people. And I, I would love for the greatest thing that we could learn in this series more than anything else is that the church isn't a place, it's the place for us to lay our burdens down. For strugglers, and for sinners, for us to find a sense of home that we could struggle together, that we could try to embody the truths of the gospel, but we would love one another as we did it. And that's, that's what I'm hoping for in this series. That's my prayer, is that all of us, with respect to everything that we have and everything that we are, that we would lay it down at the altar and we'd give it to Jesus, and that we would be the family God to one another. Well, you've been listening to the latest message in our Human Sexuality series, finding biblical answers to questions about sex and marriage, orientation, singleness, and more. You can find more information about this series and our church's ministry at gatewaycrc.org. I'm Jason McNabb. Please join us next time on the weekly sermon at Gateway.